and obviously there were some artistic liberties taken with a pliosaur laying eggs on land, but after the animal was destroyed, it was found out that, lo and behold, it had actually managed to lay a clutch of like 80 eggs before it was killed, which months later hatched on a tiny little island, and the babies dig their way to freedom like sea turtles and waddle down to the sea, with the implication, obviously, that things are going to change over the next few years. Well, yeah, you're going from like a genetic bottleneck to a, an explosion of diversity over the and, course of your two novels. Yeah, what I also, well, the great thing about book one was you have to figure, like, what is the, what are these animals getting into, the ones that come from the caldera? And it's not just a pliosaur. You know, you've got Zivectinus, you know, these 20-foot predatory fish. Yeah. You've got prehistoric, you know, proto-squid, we'll call them, like prehistoric yeah. giant squid, you know, and, a, and a host of other creatures that were living in there, and, and dozens or scores of them or more escape before that caldera reseals itself. So yeah. all these predators now are going into, in my opinion, a relatively depleted ocean. I mean, every year, millions of sharks are killed, millions for their fins, slaughtered. The whales have not rebounded from the decimation that whaling inflicted on them. I believe most of their populations, especially the great whales, are at at most 10% of their former numbers. So you have these animals now let loose into an environment where all of a sudden they're the apex predator, and there's nothing really there to keep them in check. Yeah, they become the keystone species. Exactly. And when I set up... Kraken, especially, well, the first half, well, it, it's, the story is continuous, but yeah. it's 30 years later, and I crunched the numbers because obviously I was developing new characters uh, for the, yeah. the series. You know, you don't want to just keep with the same people because it can get monotonous. But right. I also was able to crunch numbers and figure, okay, how many clutches of eggs would this pliosaur have laid? How, many, how long would it take the females to get a sexual maturity? They start laying eggs. Their offspring start laying eggs. What's the estimated survival rate you know, of them reaching adulthood, having that adapt yeah. you know, other animals? You know, I mean, let's be realistic. A, a 20-foot Zifactinus is com- quite capable of killing and swallowing a baby pliosaur. So as their their numbers explode, they would eventually start to try and keep these things in check, but not until you get to the point where you have a million or more of them swimming around. And that set the stage for Kraken and obviously this whole Pliosaur War where all of a sudden these animals are running out of things to eat. There's There's no more whales, the shark populations are decimated, and they start finding out that people also make inviting targets. And then they're changing the ecology of the seas and... You know, hell comes and with you've it. you've also, like I, like I just mentioned, you've got a lot of genetic mutation and speciation seems to be going on. Different pliosaurs well, developing different, you know, uh, characteristics. Absolutely. Branching well, off that was, from the original. Right. Well, you know, I, I figured you have this, you know, this alpha predator in an enclosed environment. Okay, an eight-mile-wide aquarium, even if it's 10,000 feet deep, is a, is a nice big fishbowl. But at the end of the day, you know, these animals might migrate 50 or 100 miles sometimes in a day. You know, yeah. so they're really in a fairly enclosed environment. Their behavior is going to change based on that environment. You know, they're not going to be as combative, combative to one another, you know, territorial-wise. Yeah. Their yeah. mating rituals might have changed to help ensure the, the, the ongoing of the species. You know, so mm-hmm. these things would adapt. And, of course, things like them developing echolocation, whether the 
real Pfizer's had it or not, uh, you know, the strongest one surviving and being hyper-regenerative. You know, all these things were I was able to play with. But the yeah. mutation factor was something that I felt would come into play more when their population escaped the caldera and started to explode. And which well, point of course, then, they've got to adapt to, to new challenges genetically. Right. And you've also got an that animal that's been genetically... That. Well, they've been genetically suppressed for 65 million years. So, yeah, you know, yeah. evolution is going to want to explode in every possible direction. So, yeah, in Kraken, we had, uh, uh, we had one animal like Proteus, and she actually has, like, almost like a chameleon-like ability to blend in with, you know, her environment. It doesn't mean, like, she could match, like, stand next to a painting on the wall and turn into that, but she can change yeah. colors and hues and shades and things like that. It makes her difficult yeah. to see. You know, there was uh, the, the, the twins, the ones that hatched from the same egg, you know, which I was able to play with a little bit with that. You know, you have different animals that you can give different features to. So, yeah. you know, whether it's behavioral, like one of them, it wasn't really a genetic thing. It was more learned behavior uh, yeah. where Charybdis, where she had been wounded, badly wounded by uh, fire from an Apache helicopter in the past. And so she basically learned to keep herself more submerged on a regular basis and develop this technique for twerking around a potential prey item, especially one on or near the surface, and sucking it under like the whirlpool, hence the name they gave her. So yeah. it, it did give a lot of opportunity to play with a lot of different things. That was, it, yeah, was, it was well, fun. You know, a, a good analogy is the evolution of mammals. You look at mammals during the Mesozoic, you know, they were suppressed by all the large reptiles occupying all the different um, ecological niches, and so they stayed little rat-like animals. Then once the dinosaurs were gone, there was an explosion of herbivores and giant predators and all that. Because right, your, bron- your titanotheres started. Yeah, your titanotheres yeah. started growing, and and dinotherium. You had these animals that maybe not they weren't as big as the biggest sauropods, but they were sizable still, and they were filling those niches, like you said. So yeah, yeah I I would agree with that a hundred percent. I actually I like the one little touch that I put in there, which also relates to plague, which we'll be talking about in a second, but yeah. where these animals, these, these pliosaurs, they have bacteria in their jaws which has been isolated in that caldera for 65 million years. And that yeah. bacteria, they're immune to, obviously. You know, like an alligator bites another alligator or a Komodo dragon bites another Komodo. But the, and maybe some of the other animals are, but mammals in particular are highly susceptible to this. So I was able to play with the idea that, you know, tease it a little bit of saying, well, maybe it's possible that, Another thing that kept mammals down in the evolutionary ladder back then was that they were susceptible to these primitive reptilian viruses, bacteriums, and would actually have mass extinctions of just mammals where they were con- you know, catching this contagion and it was going from animal to animal, to, from population to population, and yeah. keeping them in check that way. So Now, obviously, there's no evidence for that. It was just a fun thing yeah. to toy around with. But yeah. it's very likely that if we had a living relic from a bygone era, a Tyrannosaur, for example, you could bet that its bite would have some nasty stuff in there, pathogens that modern medicine would have no idea how to deal with. Probably. Mm, that's interesting. Well, you go ahead, Julie. I'll let you do some questions. Well, I, what, what, how did you um, come to write this? I mean, have you always been interested in this 
particular topic and then you know how did you come to write that first novel well let's see i mean first i guess you look at my background you know, I grew up playing with prehistoric scenes models, and every summer when we went up to New York to visit my dad's parents, we'd end up in the Museum of Natural History and such. And uh, as a, in my early teen years, I, I spent a lot of time going. I had a membership to the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, which Scott knows well. Yep, um, I used to work there. Yep. And so oh, I, yeah. I always had – yeah. oh, yeah, he, he worked in um, – I, I forget which department, Scott, paleontology oh. or – Vertebrate paleontology. The, that's the, and that's the, yeah. the place to be if you want that stuff. So well, I guess you'd say, you know, King Kong, Godzilla. I mean, any kid, you, know, you always have a fascination for these things. I used to draw them a lot. But uh, the concept of the first Cronus Rising novel, God, it's got to go back, my God, close to 15 years at this point, something like that. Maybe more. I mean, I remember, like, having the idea when I saw, like, a painting or, or something of a Kronosaurus a long time ago, and the whole notion of the, the whole impact and the, the tsunami, you know, that was the first key thing for me. That was in my head from, you know, the get-go of how could these things be here, how could we do it, and not do it something that's been done before, not something that's been boring, or worse, something that's ridiculous. You know, I mean, come on, freezing an animal in an iceberg and then it comes to life, you know, 65 million years later or something like that just isn't going to fly. You know? That might have worked and, in a 1950s science fiction movie, but it's not going to fly uh-huh. in the real world. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, you know, people come up with different explanations, but they all, there's a lot of holes in these explanations. You know, they take artistic liberties with the, the creatures, change their behaviors, change their anatomies and stuff like that, and none of that is believable. You know, plausible deniability is very important. You want your readers to experience a suspension of disbelief. And the best way for me to have my monsters preserves, so to speak, and as close to they were in prehistoric times as possible, was to give them an enclosed environment that shielded and protected them, not only from mankind and encounters, but from environmental changes that went through the planet, ice ages and so forth, you know, mass extinctions, yeah. et cetera. Hence the caldera. But the, I mean, Cronus was originally written, I'm going to say 2004 or 2005, and then it was put on hold for... You know, I mean, you get married, you know, all this other stuff, you know, working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. You know, becoming a full-time writer is not something you just snap your fingers and do. It's so, kind of a hard field to so break into. So it was basically written before Memoirs of a Gym Rat, then? Oh, yeah. It was written and finished. It's just that my publishers, they really liked the Memoirs of a Gym Rat book because they wanted this, they felt that this tell-all, you know, from a business perspective, could really get out there. You know, people would be shocked and appalled at all the the decadence and debauchery that goes on in hell clubs behind their backs. You know, so they wanted to push that one first. And my, but my passion was always writing about marine terror, sea monsters, and the people that faced them and so forth. You know, you know what made me fall in love with sea monsters? Uh, 1975, two mm-hmm. events happened. The movie Jaws was released, and Robert Rines took that underwater picture of the Loch Ness Monster, the one with the long neck and the front part of the body. Oh. That one-two punch really put the hook in me. Oh, it would definitely. I mean, how could yeah. you not? It's, you know, I mean, it's like some people that, like, you know, are, are really into Sasquatch, for example, 
the, the most passionate people are ones who've seen it. You know, once yeah. you've had a glimpse, an experience, whatever you want to call it, you know, you know something's real, it's never going to leave yeah. you. And the fact that, you know, 99% of the rest of the population doesn't buy into it, you really don't care. Yeah. You know, you're well, like, I have high a too, you know. I know, I remember you told me about it. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. What do you got next, Julie? Bring it on. Come on. I'm ready. <laughs> All right, so now you, um, you, the second part to that, mm-hmm. let's talk about that a little bit. Um, about Cronin's Rising Kraken, the second, the second book? Okay, so yeah, basically Kraken, first of all, ended up being split into two books. Um, together, the book would have been close to like 1,200 pages, and no wow. publisher in the world was going to let that happen. You know, they're like, no, no, but, but no, but, you know, it's just, I mean, you know, you're talking about something the size of, uh, it's bigger than the Bible, you know, and wow. so, yeah, stand. yeah so, stand so basically, was 1100 pages, the next forget it version, mm-hmm. and man, that well, the, book so was, was like a phone book, New York City phone book. Yeah, so I mean, so so Kraken basically what had happened with it is is that it was I had it planned as soon as book one was finished. So it would have been I started it probably in like 2005, something like that. You know, mapping it out, laying it out, you know, setting up the chapters. You know, I, I have certain techniques I use for writing in terms of it's like a tree that you add leaves to bit by bit, et cetera. But what happened is is that when Cronus was put in hold, also the like the story was there. But then I had like a, gosh, like a 10-year span where I just kept coming up with additional ideas. You know, I have this world. I have this character. I have this technology. I have this type of submarine. I have this type of this, 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 this. You know, scenes, dialogue. I mean, you know, just like you create like this. I had like a huge folder of so much stuff acquired for the story that the story grew and grew and grew. And it turned into something that I realized, wow, this is never going to be as small, quote, as Cronus Rising. And Cronus Rising is almost 200,000 words. But the, yeah. you know, the, main, the main principle behind Kraken was to take the story and move it 30 years into the future. Because, number one, I want to give my readers something fresh and exciting. You know, I mean, you, you don't go with the same old story. Like, if you look at, like, let's say, a movie like Transformers. The first Transformers movie, you are introduced to these robots. You know, they, they're rescuing these kids, and they have this basic storyline, fighting the bad guys, etc. Each movie after that has gotten more complex on a larger scale. You know, it's just more and more and more. And that's something that, in order to keep your audience entertained, is very important to take into consideration. Um, so 30 years later, you've got a world where two-thirds of your planet, a.k.a. the oceans, has been altered by the presence of this prehistoric marine life. So now you go down to the beach. If there isn't a pliosaur mm. net out there, okay, and you wade into the water, you, know, you, you have a death wish. You know, it's not just these Gee. marine reptiles. You know, you've got, you know, X-fish swimming around in schools, you know, squid. I mean, there's so many different things. They have no respect for humans, per se, you know, they're used to being the top dog. And so you go into the water, if you're in the water swimming or surfing, and a school of 15 or 20 Zifactinus swim up to you, you think they're going to ignore you or respect you? Of course not. You know, they're going to be slammed mm-hmm. up your board, grabbed, and either choked down or ripped in half and swallowed. 
you know, that's how it goes. Sort of mark. So, yeah. you know, you have like, you know, the, the, I, I had to like consider all sorts of things for the story. You know, fish stocks crashing because of the effects of these animals. You know, whale populations being decimated and survivors relocating, spending more time in colder waters, Arctic, Antarctic, just to escape their now natural predator. You know, changes in whale behavior where you'd have like large bull sperm whales that normally would be off on their own are now hanging out together in groups or even running security for pods of cows to try and protect them from these pliosaurs and so forth and so on. And all that going on, now you've got how the human race is dealing with it. Yeah, the economic and geopolitical impact uh, of that. Yeah, the, the, the whole, like the thing with the, uh, you know, with the marine park where they had like a small, like a 28-foot specimen on display, and they tried to train it like, you know, workers are in some of these places. And that obviously backfired. You know, the animal gets annoyed that it's not getting the food it's used to, jumps up and, you know, bites off half of the guy that's, you know, doing the, uh, the show. You know, yeah. obviously a lot of negative publicity from that. You know, so you have these animals that it reaches the point where they're killing so many people that, the militaries of the world, the governments of the world, just decide, you know what, something's going to be done about this. And for the first time, they're actually intentionally trying to exterminate, mass exterminate a species. You know, there's no, like, playing around about it. You know, I even got to toy around with things like creating a TV show called Pliosaur Wars, where you had, like, you know, these crews from an aircraft carrier going out and, you know, competing on who could kill the, fir- the most and the biggest and the nastiest of these man-eating monsters out there each week, you know, for their TV show. So, you know, that's how the, the whole thing evolved, and the characters are basically in this world, and they have different roles. You know, one of the main characters, he commands a submarine which is an anti-biologic, as I call it, and his goal is to go out and kill these things on the water, take them on head on. His brother, on the other hand, is managing a research facility that actually captures some of these things and turns them into bioweapons for the military, which hmm. was a nice thing now that's to have. Very yeah. yeah, I thought it made yeah. a lot of sense because they, they were able to you know, put implants in their brains so that they could control them, and the cost-effectiveness of it and the effectiveness of the idea was a, a re- really neat subject because, you know, if you have, like, for example, a naval ship, like a, a destroyer or an aircraft carrier or something like that, and, you know, these ships are out there on patrol and you have some sort of you know, insurgents or terrorists in a fishing boat loaded with explosives that try and attack one of these ships, they could damage or even sink a ship that costs a billion or more dollars. So, but if you have a screening or a screen, let's say, of a couple of pliosaurs that are controlled and they have sonar, et cetera, you can send one of these animals out to attack an intruder, something that goes, you know, crosses a certain line. And even if the animal is killed in a detonation, you know, the cost effectiveness is so much cheaper than replacing a billion dollar ship and all the lives that are attached to it. See? So, you know, if, if that, in, a, in reality, if that existed, the military would definitely be interested in that. Yeah, it's cheaper yeah, to definitely. grow. It's cheaper to grow a new machine than build one. Oh, or you wow. don't even have to grow it. You just capture one, and then you bring it in. See, that yeah. was one of the things that happened early on uh, with that big cow pliosaur. What was her name? Goliath. They they designated her, and you know they captured her. They sedated her. They they attached her to the bow of the sub, and they brought her in and did implant surgery on her. You know, yeah. they also found out that she was gravid and obviously aborted all of the uh, the eggs that she was carrying, the young. 
etc. You know, there's a lot of like nasty details that you you explore when you're creating this whole world and this ginormous research facility and what goes on in it. You know, what yeah. happened to those eggs? Yeah. They were all fed to the and tossed into a giant pool of Zephyrinus, which are kept in there as food for the Pliosaurus. See, so it's like this whole cyclical type of situation. Yeah. So Sorry, I, I attend the ramble. Have the next chapter beyond Crake and Volume Two planned out. Oh yeah, I plan out my stuff ten years in advance. Oh cool. Wow. Yeah. I have the. There are two more full-length novels after Kraken 2, and a prequel, which is already mapped out as well. And that will probably be the end of the series at that point. But I have the, three or four other books all mapped out besides that. And the prequel involves your bad guy, Carl von Freeling, right? I'm not saying anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> he might be in there, you know, in some sort of role, let's say. Now... But, on, on a side note, yes, are you planning on writing anything that is completely 180 degrees away from sea monsters? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, it's all things in time. Actually, I just finished writing a, a, a script for something I came up with, an idea for a, a horror film that has huh. nothing to do with dinosaurs, the sea, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I can't really get into details or anything like that, but uh, you know, it's it's something that I toyed with the idea of, of turning into a novel, and I could eventually. But it was such yeah. an exciting now idea that I wanted to get it done and, and you know given to my guys to see what they thought of it. You know, now as opposed to waiting six or yeah. ten years before I'd be able to get around to it. You know, you have and, only have so many so many hours in a day. And you've written a script for a KR movie, right? Oh, yeah. Years ago, I wrote the uh, Cronus Rising script, Um, but it's a little big. You know, I mean, it's hard to scrunch down a book that size into a a story, so it would need some revamping and what, but uh, it it was pretty good. You know, you you get to take some artistic liberties with the story where you can tweak and change and move characters and scenes around. I mean, you could do really do whatever you want. You're the, you know, I'm the author. But yeah, yeah, it's, uh, there is one version of KR in script form that's, uh, you know, I finished a few years ago and, and I'm sure there'll be an upgraded version when we get to that point. Yeah. Well, my understanding is that sometimes you have to do things a different way on a movie screen than you do on the written page in order for it to work. Well, the difference is that in a book, in a novel, you can tell something, meaning that, and they always say, like, show, not tell is better, meaning that, for example, you could, when you have a character and you introduce that character, you can talk about them, you can describe them, you know, you you don't want to get into too much of what they call an info dump, but you can tell all about that character, you know, what he looks like, what is implied from, you know, like when you see Carl von Freelang, and you see his appearance, and his eye color, and his scars on there, and and then Jake looks at him, and is is figuring out, oh, he's got knife wound scars, etc., and all this stuff, you know, you, you learn things about the character that you can write and describe, but in a movie, that guy would just be there. And so now you have to, the, the, the viewer, I almost said reader, has to be able to deduce things about that character from the way he looks, from the way he moves, from the way he acts. You know, sometimes just a little a simple something that somebody says will, to readers at a, at a subconscious level, I mean, I'm sorry, there I go, readers again, I'm sorry. You know, the viewer will say, 
oh, he's this or he's that or, oh, oh their marriage is in trouble. or It could be any little thing. See? Yeah. But, but the key to with a, with a proper screenplay is to be able to gauge how to do that and get that information across so that it actually shows to a viewer. You know, you don't have as much liberty as being able to tell a whole paragraph about somebody or something. Yeah. So you want to talk about the novelettes now? Sure. Unless, Julie, you have another question for me? Well, I would just, I mean, I would love to see that into a movie. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking oh, that, that whole, using that as, um, you know, a weapon against the enemy, mm-hmm. that's just amazing to me because I don't, I don't think that I've seen a movie quite like that, you know, with all the sci-fi stuff out there. you got sharks and tornadoes and all this other crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unrealistic. But what you're saying is something that could very well, you know, who knows what they're doing in the labs, you know? And it, it kind of makes you think. That's yeah, very... I, uh, I, 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 and, go ahead. No, I just, I'm sorry. I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. Um, definitely pursue that as a movie. <laughs> Thank you. Well, a lot of people like the idea of having book one as a movie, you know, like things like when the, the animal is revealed to the world where it, you know, the, the, your principal protagonist, Jake, is in the water trying to save a girl who is just horribly bitten by a, you know, a 23-foot great white shark. And the shark is about to grab him and her, and the end is in sight. And all of a sudden, this thing, this pliosaur has been tracking the shark, unbeknownst to anybody, grabs it by the tail from underwater, and it stops. So it's like the reader doesn't even know at first what's happening. The, Jake is looking in this shark's face from three feet away, and it's just staring at him with its mouth open and not attacking. And he's like, is it playing possum? Is it, is it toying with us? And then all of a sudden, the shark starts getting lifted up, up, up out of the water in an unnatural way, then the, the water all bubbles up, and this thing just comes to the surface and lifts this shark right out of the water and starts smashing it on the water to break its back and, you know, obviously kill it before it swallows it. And, you know, you have pandemonium on the beach, people running, screaming, running for their lives, the docks collapsing, people drowning, cameras filming, you know. It's a great scene. It's a great reveal. So a lot of people like stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you. I think that, you know, the whole situation with Kraken could make for – a great movie or a second movie in a series like that. You know, you have uh, so much you can play with, you know, the scenery, the visual, you know, this, this, you know, this uh, rock key in, in, the, in the Florida yeah. Keys that I created for the story that's been hollowed out partially that has all this secret stuff going on in there. You know, I, there's so many things that could be done, such, such exciting visuals and stories you know, well, for yeah. viewers. And then another yeah. cool thing is you've got two very different stories. You know, the the first story and the second story are so different they would make you know unique stories each one on on themselves. I mean, even though they're connected, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're very different. You know, oh, stories. absolutely. Book one yeah. is the, your quintessential, you know, monster movie, sea monster movie. Yeah, you know, it's like Jaws for dinosaurs, effectively. You know, you have yeah. this whole situation where you have this thing on the loose. You know, nobody believes it at first. It can't be stopped, you know, and it's just wreaking havoc. It's got to be dealt with. There's conflict there. Do we capture it? Do we kill it? You know, wait, that's your wife. You know, there's so much going on there, you know. But it has this great type of story with this climactic ending, except for the little rug pull out from under you at the end, 
you know, with these things hatching on the beach. See, yeah. the second story is a lot more complex, and it's almost like Blade Runner for sea monsters. You know, you've I, got I liken it to Starship Troopers mm-hmm. myself. Yeah, I, I, I could see something along those lines. You know, you have, yeah. like, you know, this dangerous situation. Of course, it's different when it's your world. You know, it's one thing when you're going to a planet that's, you know, and you're kind of like the invasive species and everything there wants to eat you. You know, this is yeah. more like your world has become that planet almost, and the invasive species, now you're fighting to stay alive. You're trying to, you know, stem yeah. the tide. You know, can we stop these things or not? You know, yeah. and, and basically, I mean, like, I, I got to even explore, like, the possible intel- intellect factor of these animals. You know, people think that, oh, you know, like, uh, reptiles aren't intelligent and whatnot. They don't have personalities. They don't have emotions. But after seeing that, uh, you know, that man that had that, you know, uh, that big, what was, what kind of, I think it was an American crocodile in Costa Rica that he had a 17 foot croc. And uh, I think his name was Poncho or something like that. And this man had this wild crocodile that he was able to keep for 20 years as a companion. uh, Let's call it a pet. It lived in the wild. It wasn't in a tank. He would go out to the river. He would slap the water. The croc would come up to him. You know, he would, climb on it, roll around with it, rub its belly, you know, it was insane. Yeah. The animal even said how it would yeah, rush yeah. at him sometimes and pretend it was going to bite him just to see if it could play with his head a little bit. You know, this is not the behavior oh. of some mindless carnivore who's pure, you know, who's functioning on pure instinct. There's something in there. If, I mean, if you think about it. Well, yeah, it, just because they have tiny sized brains does not mean they're not capable right. of you know, sophisticated behavior. I mean, they take care of their young, they guard their nests. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, so yeah, there's there, something I mean, I, going on. I, I, I've had web trolls bother me on, on social media who are far stupider than any crocodile out there, okay? And you could say they have a big brain, but it's how much of that brain you use, you know? And if they use one-tenth of one percent, and the crocodile is using 80% of his, the crocodile is the smarter of the two, and the, yeah. Yeah, and the warmer, in my opinion. So. Well, the biggest dinosaurs had very small brains for their body size, but it, apparently they had sophisticated behavior. You mm. know, they took care of their young. They think now it's possible that plesiosaurs took care of their young and lived yes. in social groups, too. Yes, I, I, I would I would think that would be highly likely. I mean, when you get talking about dinosaurs, you know, like Argentinosaurus, Brachiosaurus, you know, these enormous sauropods, they're like the mastodons or mammoths of their time. You know, they're huge. They're relatively safe as an adult from attack, let's say, but they're not going to be as intelligent as a theropod, you know, a predator, because of the simple fact that their food is just sitting there looking at them. You know, they just have to go up and eat it, whereas the predator has to track, has to hunt, has to outwit, has to outfight. You know, it has to have a lot more mental capacity than what it's hunting, and a crocodile obviously falls into that category. So, you know, we're going to see a lot more, I would imagine, about reptile intelligence, you know, as time goes on. I would think a T-Rex would not be something to underestimate in terms of, like, learned behavior or anything else. Well, they say that Komodo dragons are extremely intelligent, that they can be trained to do things like a dog. I would never want one in the house. <laughs> oh, me neither, but... 
You know, I had that, that blog post, I don't know if you saw it a few weeks ago. Uh, it, it actually happened a couple of years ago where I was fishing, took my little nephew and my brother to a pond in New Jersey uh, to take him on his first fishing trip, and someone's escaped monitor lizard was sunning itself. It was like 100 degrees out almost, sunning itself on the shore by this pond. Uh, this thing was at least six feet long. It was either a Nile or a water monitor, and it heard us. It grumbled. It got up all annoyed and belly dragging. It waddled down into the water and just swam into the water and took off. And, I, I mean, we both saw it. You know, it was like something – it's like seeing a dinosaur almost, I mean, if you're in New Jersey. But, yeah, I, I you know, Komodos, yeah. I mean, the venom, the – God, you know. Well, that's there's like, supposedly all kind of feral iguanas and monitor lizards and uh, – Constrictors running around South Florida. I haven't seen one yet, but they're supposedly around. So. Yeah, well, it surprised me, though, because, you know, New Jersey freezes in the winter. How is this yeah. creature out here? You know, how is it surviving? You know, is it going into the – is it just for the season? It's going to die in the fall? You know, or is it in finding a warm sewer drain to, to lurk in, you know, through the winter? Yeah. You know, it was just bizarre. Yeah. I mean, like, I, was like I, I remember saying to him, I'm like, did you see that? And my brother was like, what did you see? You know, like he was accusing me, like he wanted to make sure that he wasn't insane also or something like that, you know. But uh, anyway, oh, back to what you were saying about uh, uh, plesiosaurs and young. Yeah, I mean, if these animals are giving birth to live young and they're only having one or two or, you know, something like that young at a yeah. time, you would well, definitely think. They had think, big babies too, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would definitely think there would be nurturing going on there. I mean, but yeah. realistically, they were the whales of their time the seals, sea lions, and whales, especially cetaceans. So yeah. they were warm-blooded. We know that now. They were as big as yeah. whales, especially the big pliosaurs and stuff. Now, you would yeah. think that they probably traveled in groups, you know, in pods even, or family pods. groups or something like that. Yeah. yeah, which would be a very frightening thought, especially if you yeah. were dinner for, for that, that group. So, But I will be exploring that, actually, in a future book. Yeah. Fear not. Mm-hmm. Well, mosasaurs gave live birth, but they had small babies. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously a difference of some sort. Yeah, I would think they were more like crocodiles, where, you know, once the baby, or worse, once the baby is born, it's more or less on its own or within a few Probably. days. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you have a, you're playing a numbers game at that point. You know, if you give birth yeah. to 40 or 50 young, you know, besides the fact that, you know, if you and your husband split up the child support is insane, you know. But I'm done. Never mind. <laughs> so, um, I have issues. Earlier, you were talking yeah. about the caldera mm-hmm. that the pliosaurs were isolated in. That mm-hmm. leads into Diablo, if you want to talk about that. Oh, sure. Well, Diablo was, believe it or not, was predominantly part of the original Cronus Rising manuscript which was a funny thing. The, uh, when the story first opened up, and Cronus changed many times. I mean, I got feedback from some great people, and it seemed like everybody back then when you were first starting out wanted to tear me a new one, as they say, et cetera. You know, you, you did everything you think you're ready, and then the next guy, like, pulls the wool over your, I mean, the rug at mother. You're like, oh, no, another rewrite. So the, the whole thing with Diablo was originally a huge prologue for the story. And I had this prologue that was, for a prologue, enormous. That's why it got to be a standalone alone novelette. 
And my uh, a screenwriter friend of mine out of California, he told me, that's got to go. I was like, say what? And he was like, you heard me. It's got to go. I, I said, but, 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 but why? He goes, because you're giving away the whole story right there. All the mystery that you build up, the suspense, what is this thing, what does it look like, what can it do, all this other stuff, you've already exposed everything about it, where it came from. He said, it's great backstory, you know, but you can't use it in the book because it's going to ruin the story. And I, of course, you know, hemmed and hawed and whined yeah. and what, and he said, look, I understand it's like killing your baby, you know, he said, but I'm telling you, the story will be stronger if it's not in there. And, of course, he was right. But, you know, sitting on it for all those years, you know, it irked me that I put a lot of time and effort and energy into developing that story. You know, uh, I mean, these characters, you know, their interactions, that whole, you know, society, these prehistoric, you know, people living on the island and whatnot. You know, and so it's like when I had a, an opening, I pitched my guys on, you know, listen, since Kraken 2 is going to be a little while, why don't we release this one for people? Because I know people have asked me many times, you know, so what happened on the Caldera? You know, what was the story with this eruption and all this stuff? And so I was able to, you know, revamp it a little bit, and then they decided to put it out. Yeah. Well, it's very nice. When I first read it, I wasn't expecting, like, the the people Mm-hmm. Living on the island with the caldera, the primitive Tassadae-like people. Mm-hmm. You know, I immediately thought of the Tassadays and Easter Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, well, you know, in terms of, like, I, I had to do some research in terms of, like, where these people might have come from, you know, on rafts and things like that to have ended up in that type of place. But uh, it was quite believable in terms of developing it, and yeah. it actually made sense of the story. I mean, first off, when you're going to tell a story... You know, you can't really tell a, a, a story with just animals in it, with just monsters in it. I mean, maybe you could. Maybe I could. I've never tried it. But well, I think yeah, it makes... it kind of reminded me sort of uh, Thor Heyerdahl's stuff. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I think that people relate better to a story when there's a human element to it and there's a character that, whether he's good or bad or indifferent, that you can relate to at some level. You know, and uh, and Artek was certainly the type of character that, although people ended up hating his guts, obviously, and all that, he, uh, well, I won't get into the ending of it, but, uh, you know, the, once the story started rolling along, it has a lot of momentum, and it tends to keep you turning the page, turning the page, turning the page, you know. Yeah. It also, the backstory of the, those we'll call them natives living on that island, worked out nicely with their relationship with these giant marine reptiles, both from a, you know, a deity type of situation to the fact that they, having lived there for 10 or more thousand years, would have at some times contributed to keeping these animals alive because if their population ended up being in trouble, them herding, let's say, sea lions or seals into the caldera pool you know, to feed these animals if they were, you know, running out of food or something like that might have been the turning point or just that little straw, let's say, that kept them going so that they didn't die out, you know, on their own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they died out before my before book one came out, what was I going to do? Right. Yep. <laughs> so what else? What, Julie, what's next? Talk to me. 
I'm just like floored by um, how long you've been working on these, you know, and how how you have them already created before you turn it into a book. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. You're brilliant. This whole storyline, I just love this. You're very, you're very now, flattering, and very kind. Oh well, it's true. I mean, it's just I just love this whole storyline. So let's talk about um, the the book cover that gives me the creeps the most out of the ones that you created is that one, the plague. Mm-hmm. Tell me all about that. <laughs> what okay. is this? Well, so plague, you know, it's like one of the things that happens that I found when you have a 30-year gap between stories is a lot can happen in that time period, you know? And I wanted to be able to do some tie-ins from book one, you know, from Cronus Rising to Cronus Rising Kraken, some tie-ins so that when people got Kraken part two, there would be some aha moments you know, that they they would, like, you know, jump on. You're like, oh, that's why he's like that. That's why he did that. Oh, yeah, that was, you know, this this type of stuff. You know, it's exciting when you read something and you get the realization that there's stuff going on behind the scenes that's not spelled out for you, but now you know it. You know, it, it has a little extra oomph to the story. But uh, basically, in one of the scenes that was cut out from Cronus Rising 1 was the little bit in, uh-huh. in Plague where the girl on the ocean liner... Uh, gets, you know, uh, a face full of pliers or drool when her boyfriend gets snatched. And that was one of the early on things. And this would actually be before the animal makes landfall, as we'll call it, in Paradise Cove. So really, part of Plague is, is let's say, between Diablo and the first book, believe it or not. Like the opening scene in Plague takes place before Paradise Cove, you know, oh. right after the monster gets out of Diablo Caldera, and is on its way to Paradise Cove, it passes this ocean liner. And it's, like, fascinated because, you know, this thing is 80 feet long and weighs 125 or more tons, and it's used to being the biggest thing, you know, going. And it comes up on this, you know, 1,200-foot ship or something, and it's fascinated by this moving thing. And it even bumps it with its shoulder at one point to see if it's alive or not. And then it realizes it's not, and it's kind of pacing the ship, and then it looks up, and it sees these, these two bipeds as, it regi- you know, as they register in its brain, which it relates to the, you know, the bipeds from the island, you know, the, the natives in Diablo Hi. Caldera, in Diablo. Okay? So it's seen people before. And unfortunately for the two people up there on that railing on the side of the ocean liner, one of whom is trying to talk her boyfriend out of committing suicide and jumping, okay, this animal is often offered dead people and criminals as sacrifices when it was in the caldera. So to it and its mindset, see, these people are an offering or a snack, see? So, and it eventually, yeah, it dives down. And then it breaches fully up out of the water, and it snatches the poor guy right in, in front of his girlfriend's eyes. And when, as it bites down on him, you know, she gets a face full of blood and, and pliosaur saliva. And she goes into shock and is freaking out, and everybody thinks she's a mad woman and so forth. And she's wow. the ground zero for the infection. She's the first person that's actually infected. And she ends up in plague later, you know, being transported in the, you know, an ambulance in Paradise Cove. The ocean liner actually dumps her 
at Paradise Cove to get rid of her because she's a problem on their way back to the Bahamas. And the, uh, you know, Jake Braddock, like I, he was even tied into the story there, is actually there and sees this going on and investigates it. So we got to get a little revisit from Jake even as part of the story, Jake Braddock being the sheriff from book one. But uh, so it, it was pretty cool, you know, in terms of getting that whole thing moving. The principle behind Plague is that the pliosaur that attacked Paradise Cove infected a bunch of people, uh, whether they were, you know, people that it had bit and they, like, and they didn't die. They were just grazed or only wounded slightly or something like that, you know, but a bunch of people were infected by this animal when it attacked the marina. And those people, the CDC, et cetera, were able to corral and contain it so it didn't become a problem. And that's all explained in Plague. And, of course, though, they all died of the infection. You know, they turned into also, these. Also, like, there wow. seems to be some uh, rabies-like symptoms, too, with madness. Yes. yes. They, in, in, adrenaline levels are off the charts. So anybody infected is four to five times stronger than you would expect them to be. Uh, the person is highly aggressive, you know, violent. You know, it's not like they're going around trying to necessarily eat people, per se, but they will attack, they will bite, they, you know, they get hungry enough, they would eat a person, et cetera. And this, this thing is highly contagious. So even a little nip, and you're going to come down with what eventually we find out in Kraken Part 1 is called Cretaceous Cancer. So the second part of, so basically plague deals with this like the three weeks now following the attack on Paradise Cove and it deals with this girl that's been bitten and she eventually dies and it deals with other infectees that are out there and the government's you know desperate struggle to bring this to a close before it gets out of control because they know that if it spreads like wildfire they can't stop it because they don't have a cure for this infection you know these primeval pathogens as I call them are very are virulent they're deadly there's nothing that can stop them pure and simple you know so yeah. that 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 kind of closes out that and leaves the door open for kraken and also kraken part two and when well, we're in both, crack go ahead, it's I'm both a prequel and a bridge from book one to book two at mm-hmm. the same time yes that's absolutely yeah. true it's, it's cool because if you're reading and following the series you know everything is interconnected it's like a big net See, and you know you want to tie up all your loose ends. So you, you know, it's hard to do that when you're telling a story on such a scale, where you're trying to tie everything together and everything makes sense to everybody. You know, you just have to put a lot of effort out in terms of doing it. See, and then when Plague follows into Kraken, now Kraken is still 30 years later, but we discovered in Kraken that this infection starts to show up. I think it's about in the story about 10 years before the story starts, if you go into the backstory, Shortly after the, uh, the incident at that marine park where the captive pliosaur eats somebody during a show. And then these animals all of a sudden start showing up. They're like, you know, it's like a signal. They, they say, like, oh, you know, it's time to like, start rearing our heads up and saying hi. And you start getting these outbreaks of what is, comes to be called in the media Cretaceous Cancer in different places. You know, it's not in Florida, per se, but you'll have, like, uh, let's say, a fishing village in uh, the Philippines. And, you know, they reel in a bunch of tuna, let's say, and one of them has a, a bite wound on it where it got nicked by a pliosaur. And the tuna, unbeknownst to them, is infected. They eat it, 
make sushi out of it, whatever you're going to call it, and now all of a sudden 50 or 100 people are coming down with symptoms of Cretaceous cancer. You know, you have a, a place, uh, I don't know, uh, an island in Indonesia. Maybe they find a dead pliosaur, a small one that got hit by a ship or killed by a larger one. Or they catch one in a net and they kill it and they eat it. Now you're actually eating the meat that contains, the, you know, the most virulent pathogens on the whole animal. And everybody is getting sick. And they're all infected and they're all running around like mad dogs and biting other people, et cetera. And you've got these pockets now growing, 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 growing. So different countries, in particular ones that, that survive, make a, a lot of living off the sea, are dealing with pockets of these, this plague beginning to explode. And they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And all the while, in Tartarus, which is the, uh, you know, the behind-the-scenes research facility slash fortress in Kraken, you know, they've been trying to develop a cure for this thing the entire time, somewhat successfully. But there's problems on the horizon. Wow, so that that puts a whole new twist on any zombie-type movies they make. I mean, this is completely original, um, you know, similar symptoms that they portray in, in those type of movies, but this is more of a realistic uh, possibility. You know what I mean? There's actually a reason for it, where these other things, they just, you know, all of a sudden these zombies show up. I mean, this is really a very... Um, interesting concept that you put together. Well, yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, it's not like, see, these, anybody that has is carrying this, they're not dead. You know, you don't die from this and come back and you're a zombie. See, in this exactly. story, yeah, it's like you have rabies from hell. You know, if you got bitten by a, a rabid Tyrannosaurus, you know, this is kind mm. of what might happen to you. You know, there is like you develop like some symptoms, like if you read the part where, you know, they talk about the video of Jake Braddock, who initially was able to help them because he was immune to Cretaceous cancer. And his because he had been exposed to some of the pliosaur saliva in book one. Nobody to date has actually pointed this out to me. So I'm doing a little spoiler, let's say, but if you pay close attention, in book one, where there's a scene where this pliosaur, after this uh, uh, albino mercenary empties an Uzi into its face, it jumps up, you know, submerges angrily, comes back in a fury, breaches out of the water, and eats about 10 feet of railing and two mercenaries. Jake Braddock is standing right there and gets smacked in the face with it, with some of this stuff. I didn't spell that out, but I did have him wipe his face and then spit as he was talking to Carl von Freeling. So you mm-hmm. see, somebody who really was paying attention, close attention in there, would realize this was the moment that Jake actually contracted these pathogens. He actually had the saliva in his mouth, see? And the reason that Jake uh-huh. doesn't die and come down with this is because shortly thereafter, him and Amara are in this mini-sub that is going down 5,000 feet, and that pressure, that bathymetric pressure, is what actually enables his body to develop antibodies to, to force this thing into dormancy. He's able to develop antibodies that he's now immune to Cretaceous cancer. See, So this was a little thing I did my on my own, which I never spelled out to anybody, but is in the story. You know, it's explained in Kraken that he was, you know, he had this, these immunities, et cetera, but they, that was how they were able to develop a serum, using him as a guinea pig, but eventually 
he came down with it himself and died horribly. I mean, like, you know, almost like reptilian scales growing out of his brow and backs of his hands and, you know, blood oozing out of his eyes and ears and pink stuff and all sorts of nastiness. Sounds like the shingles from hell. There you go. (laughs) So, uh, I'm saying. Poor bastard. Yeah. A lot of people were, they they weren't surprised that Jake was dead. You know, they kind of had a feeling, but they were stunned that Amara was dead also in book two. Yeah, I I, I didn't see any of that coming, you know. I just kind of assumed that the second book would pick up with the same characters, you know, not too long after the original time period of the first novel. Boy, was I surprised, you know. Well, you know, you make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. Absolutely. Well, I think you made the right move. I mean, you you know, that was not what people were expecting. Mm -hmm. And I I had a brilliant idea myself. Thank you. Well, people, they get, you know, you get fond of a character. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Amara is a very likable character. You know, she's tall, she's attractive, she's got eyes that look like opals and stuff like that. She's very feisty, she's brilliant, you know, she's got a lot of great character traits, etc. You know, but at the same time, you know, she's, well, let's see, 30 years later, so she would have been close to 60 years old at that point, which, you know, doesn't necessarily detract her detract from her as a character, but she's in an environment where she's swimming with sharks. And I mean that in terms of the two-legged varieties. You know, she's, were, she's were you influenced at all by Eugenie Clark as a basis for her character? Uh, who is, I don't know who that is. The half-Japanese marine biologist that started the Moat Marine Laboratory here in Florida. No, I, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with with her at all. Actually, no. I uh, you know I wanted a character that was modern and exotic. You know, I, I've done a lot of martial arts in my day, so there was tendencies towards that. Uh, and I wanted somebody that would be for you know as a match for Jake, though that would be somebody who could break him out of his self-imposed shell or isolation. You know, Jake yeah. was married to this, you know, very attractive, you know, blonde woman that he'd been yeah. with, you know, since, you know, high school, et cetera. And she, she died very tragically. And in order for him to, you know, break him, himself out of a three-year funk, I needed somebody as diametrically different from that, you know, what he was used to as possible to try and, yeah. you know what I mean? Like if it was somebody who looked like his dead wife, the odds of him being, you know, attracted sort to her, you know, would be much treatment. slimmer. Yeah, so you need, you know, you have to take all these things into consideration, you know, from a, you know, I mean, like, and you know, I, I, I've never discussed this in an interview before, but it's funny that, uh, you know, you have like periodically, you know, when you look at like reviews, for example, for Cronus Rising on Amazon, and every once in a while, you know, you'll get like this, this review from somebody who, I call them a quote professional reviewer. You know, it's like they come on there and they, they want to, like, you know, dissect your book and tear into it and try and point out, like, flaws and things like that, you know, as an excuse to try and give you a lousy review when everybody else is giving you four- and five-star reviews. And one thing I've right. seen several times about Cronus Rising is people complaining about the interactions and dialogue between Jake 
and Amara, you know, through throughout the story, the flirting and things like that. You know, they describe it as adolescent, sophomoric, you know, whatever you want to call it. And I, I you know, they're like, I mean, and, and why is Amara not, uh, you know, Jake is is you know thinking about his his dead wife and has these flashbacks and all this stuff. Well, why isn't Amara, you know? Uh, still, you know, miserable about her fiancé getting killed and all this stuff. And, and I'm like, well, obviously, number one, this person didn't read the book thoroughly or skimmed it or, some, or had somebody read it for them. Because, number one, Amara's fiancé died like 10 or 11 years earlier, number one. So 10 or yeah. 11 years is a much longer time than three years to get over somebody's death, number one. Absolutely. Number two, yeah, she was married after that. And uh, so obviously moved on and then split up with her ex-husband, you know, some three years prior. So that whole, you know, chain of thought was inane to begin with. But the thing about the flirtation and this and that, that actually irked me because they were like, oh, it was so juvenile and awkward. I felt so uncomfortable. And the point was, that's how it was meant to be. Because you've got like these two characters, you know, this, this guy is a widower, his wife drowned right in front of him. And he hasn't been on a date in three years. He had turned alcoholic briefly because of it, bounced back, whatever. He's a loner, a lonely guy. And, you know, flirting with women is not his forte anymore. You know, then you've got the girl who, you know, lost a fiancé who got blown up basically by a harpoon cannon, okay, ended up marrying the guy who she didn't know at the time was the one responsible for that, you know, was, you know, physically, mentally, and sexually abused in her marriage and left the guy, and she hasn't been with anybody in three years either. So you would expect anything that went on between them would almost be like two 15- or 16-year-olds trying to, like, you know, flirt with each other, et cetera. And you would expect yeah. it to be awkward and uncomfortable and you know, maybe a little, yeah, a little goofy at times and, you know, stuff yeah. like that. You know, and that was the intention. So if, when somebody says, like, oh, it was so awkward, thank you, because that's what it was supposed to be. I, that's, that's pretty cool. It really sounds like you put a lot of thought into these characters, too. I mean, just all these little details that you just said about, you know, her husband being killed by the other husband and she didn't know it, that's that's a lot of detail right there. Well, you uh, have, Max, you know, when you create, yes. Um, when you were um, developing the Kraken monster mm-hmm. for the Kraken book, what real-life inspirations did you draw from? Well, the, when you're when you're looking at the legend of the of the Kraken, and it goes back. I think it starts with the uh, with the the Vikings and stuff. Um, hold on one second. I'm sorry, but uh, you're dealing with an animal that is most likely based on encounters that people had with giant squid, you know, or something worse, but some sort of other large cephalopod that you know is big enough and dangerous enough to actually prey on people. You know, I mean, I have a personal theory that there are very, very large squid out there that actively prey on whales. And there have been far too many reports of things that I've seen where people describing a whale fighting a sea serpent. And it's obvious to me that what they're describing is a sea serpent wrapped around a whale is actually tentacles of an enormous squid or octopus, most likely a squid. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, when you when you look at that, you got to say, okay, so you know these things exist. You know, they probably feed on whales. They probably exist yeah. right now. I mean, now, now. I mean, yeah. there, there, you know, there's been a what was it in um, nine, Josh, only eight years ago, a guy's a hundred and ten foot trimaran fishing yacht. I mean, not fishing yacht, uh, like a, one of those sail yachts, was grabbed mm-hmm. by a squid. With, and stopped in the water by a squid that had tentacles as thick as his thighs. So if yeah. you look at the carcass of a giant squid, you know, even a 20, 25-footer, those you know, tentacles are only about two inches thick, maybe three at most. Sounds about you know? right. Yeah. yeah. So how big is one with tentacles as thick as you know, a grown man's quadriceps? You see, yeah. so you know that was one thing that inspired me. You know, I wanted a realistic monster. I also wanted a monster, however, that and this you know goes with what Julie was saying about how you you know you put a lot of thought into these projects. But you have an animal that lives in the deep water trenches. You know, I mean, down there, you know, they're you know, Lord knows what's down there. People have sent you know everything right. from what's that. But no, that's reality. I mean, we don't know uh, very yeah. much, really, about what's in the depths of the ocean. You know? There was that incident too with Sean Ingham and his crab pots. Uh, with the the, the one with the giant shark, you're talking about, or? No, no, no. The in the Bahamas back around 1983 or 84, there was a guy mm-hmm. that had crab pots down. This was around Andros Island where the Deluska is reported. Mm-hmm. Something grabbed his lobster pots, crab pots. Oh, I, I've read about reports, like even in Hawaii, where somebody reported they saw an octopus with suction cups the size of trash can lids and mm-hmm. that it was being attacked mm-hmm. by a group of sharks and then and it fought off the sharks and, uh, you know, it was just sitting on a reef or something like that. So, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, I mean, with only 5% of the oceans explored, you know, you've got things down there that are going to could blow people's minds and that you, frankly, would not want to encounter unless you were in a very secured, you know, vessel or something like that. But, yeah. you know, my theory for the Kraken was, you know, I went with the, like, for example, that... uh the lobster, the St. Augustine monster, you know, they were dubbing it Oculus yeah. Giganteus. And I yeah. like that name, so I used that, obviously, to give it a, a touch of reality. And I went yeah. with the notion that you had octopi living in the deep water abysses that could be of that scale. And yeah. then the thing with these animals is, is that I believe that these animals prey on sperm whales. And yeah, I. Well, maybe- Maybe we should talk about Mark McMenamin's Triassic Kraken, too. Sure. All right. Well, uh, oh, I, let me just finish my thought. So my, my point was that the, the, in the beginning opening scene, the very first chapter of, of Kraken, there is this whole scene where these two big bull sperm whales are diving down into the abyss to hunt. And it was cool, and I'm sure Julie would like this also in you, because one of the whales is actually was in the previous book. He was mentioned, actually, in a flashback sequence that Amara had where she almost died and this white whale that they were going to kill, she was trying to protect, and she was in the water with it and all that. So this is this animal as an older whale, like a grandpa at this point, and he's with another very large sperm whale, which is actually his son. And so I was able to tie so much stuff into this, touching on different things where these animals were contemplating the pliosaurs and their appearance, 
and the effect that it had on them and their kind, you know, their thoughts on humanity, you know, and, and whaling and, and so much stuff. And Scott, you noticed that thing about I, I showed you that the other sperm whale had the indication of teeth starting to show in the upper jaw, which was a yeah, little like that. Yeah, which ties uh, into uh, Leviathan. Yes. Yeah. So the, the whole Leviathan thing, you know, and all that, a little homage to that or possibly, you know, a little tease, whatever you want to call it. So, you yeah. know, you can accomplish so much even with just with animals like that. But I have a theory personally that sperm whales, when you go down there, sometimes you don't come back because there are things down there that even a sperm whale, you know, has to avoid. You know, you're down there yeah. in the dark, you know, in the literally in the dark, in the freezing cold, holding your breath five or 10,000 feet down and risking your life to get dinner, okay? And sometimes yeah. they run into one of these things. But you see, with the advent of these pliosaurs now decimating whale populations and so many sperm whales, you know, and other whales altering their migratory routes and moving to colder waters a lot of the time to avoid pliosaurs, now these giant cephalopods living in the abyss are out of food. You know, they're hungry. And what are they going to do? You know, they got to find an yeah. alternative source. So they, you know, it mentions how in the past when times of famine, they'd come up to the surface looking for stuff. And this would explain sightings that people have had with them, et cetera. But now they're up there, they're up on the surface, and they're trying to find stuff to eat. You know, next thing you know, they attack a big schooner called the Roar Cool. Get it? You know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was appropriate. But anyway, and mistaking it for like a big finback whale, you know. And, and by the way, I'll oh. interject real quick. I believe that that, uh, that trimaran that was attacked by that giant squid, that it actually thought that that was like three whales, you know, swimming together. See? Mm. And that's why it made its move. But anyway, moving right along. So, um, yeah, and, and that's, you know, it attacks this, this schooner, which is a great, you know, story all to itself. I mean, I could have released that as a short story if I wanted to or something. You know, it's got a whole beginning, middle, end to it. It's, it's horrifying. But anyway, and when these octopi attack the schooner, they find out, oh, it's not a whale, but wait. Hey, there's a tasty hors d'oeuvre. Ooh, here's another tasty hors d'oeuvre. Pluck, 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 Fine. pluck, pluck, pluck. Crunchy, crunchy, uh, tasty Ex center. Exactly. And now yeah. you've got highly intelligent mollusks. I mean, everybody knows these days that octopi, you know, have like the, the, the theory is that if they didn't li live a short lifespan, they would have become the dominant life form on this planet. Okay? Yeah, highly but, intelligent. They can yeah. be taught to perform tricks. Octopus mm -hmm. can. So now these octopi, they know that. Each one of these ships has food on it, and it's easy to get, you know. I mean, it can't fight back, you know. So now they're basically making a living off of ravaging any suitable-sized vessel that they can get their tentacles on. See? Yeah. And that's going to become a big problem for them, you know, or for us, I should say, which will obviously right. build into, into Kraken too. see. It also puts them into areas where they may come into conflict with other things, Possibly a pliosaur, possibly a submarine. I mean, who knows what could happen? This guy Max Holthorne, he's a few beers short of a six-pack, I hear. You know, anything's possible well, with him. One you thing never know. to bear in mind, not only are there giant cephalopods mm -hmm. in the deep ocean, but there are also monstrous jellyfish as well. 
Yeah. Oh, I, I, was, I was thinking about having Tiamat escape and having her grab one of them and slapping it on some bread with like a vat of peanut butter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> That's what yeah, the leatherback turtle the jellyfish eats. Hmm? That's what the leatherback turtle eats. Yes, I, I know. They, and that, those awful teeth and thro- those throat teeth they have. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, That's those teeth awful. go all the way down the intestinal line and all the way. Yep, that's like a one-way ticket to uh, Digestiville or something. Yep. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're, you know, I, I love leatherback turtles, by the way. I, I just oh, want to say. Oh, me too. Yeah, they're, they're, did you know they could swim at 22 miles an hour? They're fast. They're, yes, which tells you now. We were talking about in that new uh, paper about the Mexican uh, polycotylid plesiosaur mm-hmm. that it may have actually swam faster than a leatherback. Oh, I would because think, of the honestly. Flippers. We should act, we could actually use this to uh, to tie into the, the my flipper thing at some point. But yeah. uh, if you think about it, if these animals are able to use their flippers, all four flippers at the same time, see properly without them pushing the same water, they would be yeah. able to swim significantly faster. And they're more oh, yeah. streamlined than a turtle, for sure. And have you know I would think they would be much more powerful because they're active predators. You know, yeah. you're not, well, you know, you know a jellyfish yeah, isn't exactly known for its escape velocity. The sea turtles, you yeah. know, they, they, they've kept their back flippers in almost a foot shape because they're tied to the land for laying eggs. They mm-hmm. have to dig them nests. Well, my research showed also, keep in mind, the male turtles have the same thing, but they actually use them also for steering. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. in fact, I've seen the male turtles... The, from the ones I've looked at, it seems like their rear flippers are a little bigger than the females, and I'm wondering if that has to do with the fact that they pursue the females, you know, in order to mate because they mate in the water. But yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're, they make excellent rudders. Also, did you want to talk about yeah. the uh, Triassic Kraken at all, or did you want to move yeah, on to absolutely. the? Yeah, uh... We got time. Well, what I wanted to do before we <clears throat> move on to that though is, l- let me ask you this: your um, your novel, your series, they've, mm-hmm. they've won a couple of awards, haven't they? Yes, and I'm very privileged that that's happened. Uh, both Cronus Rising and Cronus Rising Kraken won Book of the Year. Uh, Cronus from the Prehistoric Times magazine, the, uh, the, it was a People's Choice type thing, and Kraken won through Geek Island with their Book of the Year award as well which was impressive because it beat out some serious competition from some, you know, best-selling authors. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was very proud of that. So. Yes. That's very well deserving. Um, well, tell us the listeners where they can find your books at. Where, oh, sure. Where do you sell them from? My well, honor. Nowadays, their best, your best bet. I mean, you can go to Barnes and Noble and you can order it, but your best bet, honestly, is to just order through Amazon or online through BNN or something. Uh, and the reason for that is, is that uh, working with a, a small indie publisher, I did not want my readers to have to pay twenty dollars for you know a, a hard 
copy of the book, which Cronus first came out at. You know, it's such a huge book that they had that price tag on there, et cetera. I wanted them to pay a lot less. Uh, the, unfortunately, when you drop a price from 19.99 to 13.99, you know your profit margins, you know, also shrink, which eliminated a lot of wholesale activity. But it's better for the readers. So the easiest way to go to get any of the books is just go on Amazon, click a button, and in two days it's on your doorstep. Are the uh, okay. novellas available as paperbacks? Everything, yeah. The uh, Cronus and Kraken are available as full-size paperbacks, and Diablo and Plague are actually combined into the same book. So ah. this way oh, you okay. have... Yeah, so yeah. really there's three hard copy versions of the book, one of which has two stories in it together, and the other two are those full-length monsters that you know people sit and... One, you know, occasionally they tell me they read it nonstop, and I'm like, how? You know? Is there a hardback of the two novellas? Uh, a hard, a hardback? Did you say? Yeah. No, no, it's, it's not. No, no. The the hard copy of the novellas is, like I said, Plague has Diablo in it. So when you buy Plague, the hard copy of it, you get Diablo with it automatically. I understand that, but I'm saying, is it, is it available in a hardback copy as well as no. a paperback? No, no, no. They're they're all paperbacks right now. Uh, yeah, it, it was a. It's a relatively small book. It's only like 130 pages or something like that. You yeah, know, these know. weren't big big stories, so it wouldn't justify that type of uh, you know cover. Yeah. Okay. Now, can they get them through like a, a ebook, like Kindle or? Oh yeah, they they have the Note version, they have the Kindle version. Amazon gives people uh if you don't have a Kindle, you don't need it. You can just download their Kindle software for free and read it on any device you own. Which is, you know, pretty so nice. Everybody looks. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Oh. that because you'll be disappointed. Amazon has a cloud reader too that you can use online for Kindle books. That's cool. Okay. You know what? Julie, when you were asking me about awards and stuff, there was one thing that I, I remembered uh, that it kind of like, it was such an annoying thing. You see, Cronus Rising, the cover that you see with the, uh, you know, the flies who are about to swallow this poor diver, uh, that was mm-hmm. a, a new cover, you know, that I had custom commissioned, et cetera. David Bonadonna, the paleo artist, did an incredible job painting that. I mean, it was hugely popular. And... We actually submitted that to Authors DB for their cover art contest for the horror category. I don't know if it was like uh, six or eight months ago, something like that. And, you know, it was like it was getting so many votes, and it ended up only taking the silver medal, like second place in a division, because what was happening is all these readers were going on there and they were voting. For it, and they were clicking on Authors DB site under it. They were clicking like from Facebook, as if it was a Facebook thing, you know, like, 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 like that, and not clicking right under it where it says cast your vote. So it was like the book that actually took first place had like 80 Facebook likes on their site, and Cronus Rising had 5.2 thousand, you know, votes, oh. but they they all registered as Facebook likes instead of actual votes. So we lost because people were clicking the wrong button. Oh, oh no! Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. God. It's like it's like going to a to a party at the wrong apartment. <laughs> yep. Say. 
<laughs> what are you going to do, you know? Jeez. Hopefully next time I'm going to have to spell it out, you know? Right, so. right. Well, well Max, that's good. That's, everybody needs to go get their copies of that and uh, check that out. There's probably three so, things yeah, we need you to go over. To, um, hmm? Yeah. There's probably yeah, three things we need to – yeah. I was going to say there's three things we need to go over before the end of the show. Your uh, Miguel Adarn stuff about being a scavenger, your uh, theory about why elasmosaurs had long necks, and also your recent plesiosaur swimming study. Okay. If you want to go into those. Well, let's uh, see. What do we got, about 40 minutes here? Something like that. Uh-huh. Okay. So Actually, yeah. which one would you like to start with? Oh, let's go with the Mag- Megalodon. Okay. So when you write paleofiction, which I do, you know, you tend to do a lot of reading and research on you know, assorted prehistoric animals, obviously. You want to make your you know, stories as realistic as possible, as gripping as possible, you know, suspension of disbelief, all that good stuff. And, uh, you know, I've had Megalodon teeth in my fossil collection, which is a fairly extensive one. Uh, one of them was even previously licensed to a fossil replica company that, you know, used to make, uh, I think, resin, you know, replicas of it or something like that. But anyway, and one of the things I had noticed, obviously, was the appearance of the teeth of the Megalodon. They changed from, you know, being a juvenile through adulthood. And as I read into it more and more and as I researched and looked at more and more samples, and obviously my mental faculties increased over the years, I came to the conclusion that the Megalodon shark starts off life as an active predator meaning that it's making a living when it's, you know, it's born, it's seven or ten feet long, and it's, uh, you know, it's swimming around, and it's hunting seals and dugongs and manatees and dolphins and who knows what, and it's getting bigger and bigger. It's 20 feet long, it's 25 feet long, it's 30 feet long. You know, it's hunting primitive whales and so forth and so on. But the shark, as it gets larger, bigger, heavier, etc., the one of the downfalls of having a cartilaginous skeleton is you don't have the muscular capacity, the muscular attachment strength that an animal with solid bones would have. And when I say that, for example, let's say, let's look at a great white shark, okay, for relativity. So if a great white shark that's 20 feet long and probably weighs Mm, I'm going to say four to 5,000 pounds. You think that would be about right? Probably, yeah. Okay. So you got a, a 5,000-pound great white shark, and it gets beached, okay, in the surf or something like that. What happens to that great white shark? It lays there and dies. Yes. It might flop its tail a couple times in protest, you know, gnash its teeth. He's done for, okay? No he leverage. does not have... The, you know, the muscular strength. He's collapsing on himself. He doesn't have the power to get He's out a of blob. there. Right. Now, if you take a killer whale that size, okay, we've seen killer whales that size beach themselves all the time and catch a seal and then go back into the water. Yeah. Okay. When I was invited down to SeaWorld two years ago, I watched the orca show while I was there, and I was astonished at the power 
of these orcas. They were in on a, a platform that might have had, I don't know, four to six inches of water in it, so really nothing. It's just wet. And they were able to do the human equivalent of handstands. They were able to do this arc, you know, like an upside-down rainbow, tail in the air, head in the air, and then spin, spin themselves around, you know, mm. in that position. And I watched it, and I'm like, this is astonishing, the strength, you know. And then you look at a shark, yeah. and you realize that a shark that size would be dying right now, okay. So yeah. as sharks get bigger, and you see this in your whale sharks, and you see this in your basking sharks, okay, which are actually related to great whites and so forth, yeah. they're mackerel sharks, okay, sharks. that their swimming speed becomes greatly reduced the bigger they get. They become bulkier, slower, less agile, whatever you want to call it. And this applies yeah. to great whites as well. If you look at the video of, what's that big great white shark's name, Deep Blue, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. supposed to be a you know, 20-foot female, biggest one ever filmed and all that. Yeah, yeah. she is like a dirigible, you know. Yeah. She's like, you know, just moving along, you know. You can't picture her chasing down a sailfish, okay. So the point is, is that the bigger the sharks get, the slower and less maneuverable they get until they get to a point where you reach it where – uh, like a, a 40 or 50 foot megalodon is no longer capable of catching a healthy whale. At mm -hmm. which point the animal is predominantly a scavenger at this point. Yep. Um, but anyway, sorry, something. So Maybe it's like, for and, a shark, when you get to that size, you have the option of becoming either a scavenger or a filter feeder. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like if you look at the teeth, the teeth are what really cinched the deal for me. It's like the teeth of a, a juvenile megalodon, and I have this on my blog, there's photos there, are identical, with the exception of the chevron, identical to a great white shark's. Identical. Well, they're basically almost the same animal, if you think about it. Well, I mean, you know, different paleontologists have different you know, viewpoints on that, but I'm just well, saying no, if you I'm look at the, not, not not exactly that closely related, but, but convergent is, is the term I'm looking for here. Oh, that, that, a definitely. juvenile mag and a, and a, great, a big great white. Right. So you look at this yeah. now, you look at these teeth and you see, okay, a teeth of a great white shark are used to slash, to cut, to puncture, to cause prey to bleed out, to bite chunks out of it, etc. Okay. And their teeth, even when they're fully grown, don't really change significantly. You know, they're basically the same blades, like steak knives, that are used, okay? Megalodon starts off with these steak knife teeth, and as it gets larger and larger, the teeth become more rounded, less pointy, almost blunt in the end. Like thicker, a chisel. Yeah, stouter, wider root bases, etc. The serrations become so fine, it's almost like a hacksaw. You know, and I looked at this and I said, well, why would this thing have teeth? It's, it's effectively a nutcracker at this point. You know, if you have a hacksaw, hacksaws are used for what? Cutting through metal. Now, obviously, sharks aren't going around biting through metal, but what else hard would they be biting through? And that would be bone. See, so your, your megalodon shark's tooth is designed as an adult to bite through bone. Now, proponents of the whole megalodon is always the world's greatest you know, predator, 
stuff, will say, oh, it was crushing the backs of its prey and skulls and all this other stuff. Okay, but the truth is, is that when you're a 55-foot shark that weighs 60 tons and swims at a maximum speed of 8 or 10 miles an hour or something like that, you know, an agile whale is going to dance out of your way, and that's not really going to work. Moreover, if you're going to attack a whale, you know, the whale is going to fight back. It's going to use its teeth if it has them. It's going to use its flukes. It's going to ram with its head. You know, if there's a pot of them, who knows what they might do. So the point is that a predator, I would equate this to, let's say, a great white shark attacking an elephant seal of similar size. A predator yeah. like that likes to go in, bite a vulnerable spot, and then wait for the prey to expire. Okay? Because you want to get as little damage to yourself as possible. So when a white yeah. shark attacks an elephant seal, oh yeah, it goes for the hindquarters to limit mobility, sever an artery, and let the seal bleed to death. It does not want to get into a slugfest with the seal. It doesn't want to get in close okay. and get bitten, maybe lose an eye, etc. Okay? So if you're a megalodon, why would you want to risk that? Why wouldn't you just bite the belly of the whale, the flukes off the whale, etc., and then let it expire? All these things a great white shark can do with seals and sea lions of comparable size with its sharp, stake-cutting, triangular teeth. You see, so my opinion came to be that these big chiseled teeth were designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to bite through the rib cages of whales, but not live whales. Whales that are already expired, drifting carcasses that have been that was either died on its own or was killed by something else, possibly, let's say, a 30-foot megalodon that was still an active predator, or maybe, I don't know, uh, Carcaricles chubutensis that shared the seas with it for, like, I don't know, 18 or more million years, okay, yeah. and that, you know, was slightly smaller. And, you know, this carcass, more often than not, sometimes these carcasses are stripped. You know, all the juicy parts, the blubber, the muscles on the outside, etc., are gone already. You're a giant yeah. shark that weighs 50, 60 tons. You need a lot of meat. You know, you're not going to gnaw on a few bones and get a few scraps and be happy. But if you can crush through that whale's rib cage and you can get to the heart and the lungs and the digestive tract, et cetera, yep. you know, you've got some highly nutritious pieces of meat there that can fill your belly and keep you moving. In addition to that, they were you know. Probably cannibals as well, probably eating dead specimens of their own kind, too. Oh, I would think so, you know, but, I mean, if you, if you picture it, now, then let me just step back. This isn't to say that Megalodon was not a predator, even at maximum size, okay, because, and I said this in my article, you know, if you were a sea turtle and you couldn't get out of the way, you know, those bone-crushing teeth are going to be put to good use, you know. Yeah. If you were a, a sick whale that couldn't swim, if you were a whale giving birth and you couldn't move, whatever it would be, obviously the shark's going to rush in and it's going to make a kill if it can. But by and large, most, maybe 90% of its meals would come from whale carcasses, even if that meant, you know, taking that carcass from other sharks. You know, I mean, if you're a 35-foot, you know, chubutensis and a 55-foot megalodon is bearing down on you, you're going to get out of the way. Get the hell you know, out you're of the let, let her. Yeah, yeah you're going to let her take that carcass and, you know, and maybe they already had their full at that point, especially if you were the one that killed that whale. So yeah. that was the theory that I had on that. You know, you've got, and it's all in the teeth. Triangular teeth with big serrations equal steak knives for cutting steak, just like great whites. You know, teeth that yep. turn eventually into bone chisels are for, you know, crunching into bones. And when you yep. crunch into bones, mm -hmm. which is hard work, 
I mean, come on. You've got to have a reward waiting on the other side of that. And this theory is confirmed because many whale carcasses have shown that megalodons bit through the rib cage. And so obviously the, they were doing that for a reason. You've got the giant meg teeth with the broken tips too. Oh, yeah. That, oh, that, uh-huh. That's another thing that I touched on. Yeah, the compression fractures. You know, you get yeah. these from feeding, okay? And if you think about it, if you look at the tooth design, you know, with those very tiny, you know, serrations, if they go between ribs, that would help sever the ribs and make breaking them easier. The ones that hit point on, you get these compression fractures, and these aren't from biting into a struggling animal, these are from biting in a still thing and putting graduated pressure. If you bite into a flailing animal, your tooth doesn't crunch slowly down the tip. It gets knocked out of your mouth. You know, shark's teeth are not known for being, you know, as securely anchored as, say, crocodiles or sperm whales. Well, or they have a layer belt behind every one of them. Exactly. So new ones waiting to come in. Right. So their teeth are in, in soft cartilage, you know, comparatively speaking. They don't have as much anchorage. So, you know, all this evidence indicates that as this animal grew, its, you know, slow speed, its lack of maneuverability, its sheer mass, and the designs of its teeth, and the ones that we've studied, the bigger teeth, show that it basically converts into a giant scavenger. Like, yeah. it's not 100% scavenger, like I said. If, you know, you or I fell in the water in front of one and it was hungry, I'm sure we wouldn't last very long, you know, with a maximum mm-hmm. swimming speed of, you know, two miles an hour, you know, and even with our, you know, us expelling shark uh, deterrent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going uh, to let Julie ask you about the plesiosaur stuff. Sure, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, I looked at that animation that mm-hmm. you had created. Um, I found that very fascinating. First, of, you you have, you have that in a blog, right? That yeah, it's available. Animation. I mean, it was posted on the fan page. It's on YouTube, and it's also on the Cronus Rising website and blog. Okay, so tell us, um, you know, what what gave you the concept? How that particular movement. Was it by examining the bone structure of the fin? It's a, it's a variety of things. I mean, I first started working on this idea mentally a couple of years ago. I would say about two years ago, maybe a bit more. Um, I had, believe it or not, I mean, like people were talking about different things with it. You know, were they, did they use the front-only flippers? Uh, I think like uh, you know some of the some guys in in the UK were saying that paleontologists did they use the rear flippers and then the right were more for steering did they do figure eights you know did they alternate use the front use the back use the front use the back etc you know a lot of there was a lot of opposition to all four being done at the same time because of the theory of what I call the the theory of uh, you know flipper redundancy or whatever where they would push the same water so the animal can't go any faster so it's like counterproductive. Right. And I said to myself, well, I, I wasn't buying the whole, you know, uh, alternate, you know, flipper thing or front only or rear only or something like that. Because when I looked at some of the skeletons, you know, these are, the, the, these animals have big flippers, you know, strong, strong muscle attachments, you know, their femurs, their humeruses, they're, they're like, like sauropod bones almost, you know, if you think about it in terms of their solidity. And they're attached to these large paddles. You know, all of them, you know. So it's like yeah. nature or and evolution. The muscles, the muscles were primarily on those big coracoid plates underneath the body, but they think also that some of them 
were attached to the base of the neck mm-hmm. in a big, thick muscle mass. Well, the thing that that's, I, w- I was thinking is, is like, you have all this, okay, you've got these four flippers, they're all super-powered, they're all marathon runners, if you think about it. I mean, these things swim all day, okay, they're going to be virtually tireless, at least at moderate speeds. So, you know, you're effectively having paddles that are like a marathon runner's legs. Why would nature evolve that and then say, okay, go direct traffic, you know? I mean, like, what's the point? You're right. You know, if you, you know, I looked at sea turtles, and a sea turtle predominantly propels itself with the front flippers. It also does sharp turns with the front flippers, but its longer turns and maneuvers are also directed by the hind legs, which act like rudders, like on a ship. And I have videos that show this. So, you know, if you're steering, you don't need big flippers. You know, in fact, they would actually become a problem in the water if you're trying to steer with big flippers only. So none of that made sense to me. So I sat there and I was like, well, how? Go ahead. I'm sorry, Scott. I was just going to say one thing the some of the plesiosaurs had that the sea turtles don't are tail rudders, fins. Mm-hmm. That probably would have helped in steering, which would have freed I, up the back flippers mm-hmm. for propulsion. It could be. I mean, I, I, when I was doing my studies, I looked at videos of sea lions swimming. And, you know, you'll see a sea lion cruising along, and these guys are just pure grace in the water. And yeah. you know, he wants to make a turn. He just takes one flipper, and he's like, whoop, and he's like grease. You know, it's amazing. And to picture a plesiosaur doing this, especially a big one, is very frightening. I mean, the ability to change direction like that and, and accelerate so quickly, et cetera. But my eureka moment, if you want to call it that, which is kind of fitting because who was it? Um, was it Archimedes that sat in the, in the pool with the crown and then he had this eureka moment where he literally said eureka and ran naked through the streets, you know, or something like that with uh. this crown that he was trying to figure out if it was really gold or not? You know, I was sitting in a hot tub. You know me, living the life of luxury, whatever. James Brown, and, celebrity hot tub. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. My, my hot dog time machine I had going on there, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, and I was like, I had my hands together, and I was pretending they were like one side of the flippers on one side of the body, you know, front and back, and flipping them through. I'm like, how could this work? How could this work? And then I just realized I had the rear one kind of arcing up, you know, and I realized, okay, the trick is they're not pushing the same water. They're pushing a separate plane of motion, separate water, and this lets them, you know, move faster, maybe twice as fast conceivably, you know. So that's when I first came up with the idea, and I, I, you know, I sent it to a couple paleontologists I knew on Facebook, you know, and the one guy was like, uh, yeah, that's an interesting idea, you can put it on the pile, you know, like this type of thing, you know, but I wasn't going to just, like, be, be dismissed about it or anything like that. You know, so I, yeah. I started we're looking at it more and more, and you know, I, I put a little crude thing out myself, trying to do a little animation with my phone and whatnot. But you know, at first, I thought that the hind flipper would have gone up significantly higher than the front one. You know, but then as I looked at the anatomy more and more and more, I realized that that wasn't the case. They were still moving through separate planes of motion, but the front set was more like a sea turtle's without the extreme high elevation because plesiosaurs don't have that elbow joint that a turtle does. You know, if you see sea turtles, they can actually lift their flippers straight up, like point toward the, you know, the ceiling. Um, yeah, there's something about the plesiosaur uh, shoulder blade that will only allow them to lift it up so high unless yeah, there's the, uh, a cartilage there that, that could get around that. Right. The actual the skeleton of Moranosaurus that they've been looking at recently in a rear, and this 
bolsters my theory even more, had more elevation. And the reason for this is if you look at the pectoral girdles and the pelvic girdles of the animal, and this is something yeah. that I guess because they had flattened skeletons for so many years, nobody's Slide paying attention to or what? Well, right. so if you look at the yeah, if you look at the front of the where the front flippers attach, you know that that shoulder girdle there, et cetera, it's arcing up in the front towards the animal's head. You know, it's yeah. on an angle, maybe 30 degrees on a guess. If you look yeah. at the vent of the animal and you look at the pelvic insertions and all that, it's the opposite. It's elevating up toward the tail. And that tells you yeah. right there that the ranges of motion for the humerus and the femur are going to vary according to those insertion points. So well, that's when I was able to anim- figure out. What's that? I was going to say, looking at your animation, mm-hmm. it looks like the front flippers are doing a more up and down motion than the rear ones, and the rear ones are more pushing backwards. Right. The same. Exactly. So what ended up happening is what made the most sense was for the animal in the front to, I don't want to say more like a a, a penguin, because penguins are kind of limited. You know, they're, they're very stiff. And they're, they're moving, even their flippers are somewhat stiff, and it's like flap, 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 and it's these short, real quick things. Whereas, yeah. And it wouldn't have had the extreme range of a sea lion, where a sea lion can clap its flippers together. I could not picture you know, a plesiosaur being able to do that, per se. Yeah. But it would have more range, and it would have these more flexible, almost undulating flippers, because there are so many bones in the actual paddle. See? So mm-hmm. they had more like a sort of like a sea turtle movement, let's say, in the front, without going so high and a little more range down and back, whereas the rear flippers were actually staying more like parallel to the ground or the the seafloor, let's call it that, and pushing backwards. They were avoiding, during the power stroke, the same plane of motion, the same water that the front ones, you know, were going through. And the cool thing about this is the flippers are not interfering with one another. You know, I mean, we've seen studies yeah. have been out there. They're talking about, you know, you know, the, the vortices, and they're talking about, like, Yeah, that's you know. the guys from Southampton University that have been mm-hmm. using the, the flow, liquid flow recreations. Right. They, and the, they are, they're trying to say that the back flippers are, are working off the water that's been displaced by the front flippers and are, are enhancing that. Well, when I when I first put this thing out a couple years ago, I covered in there. You know, I didn't use the term vortices or anything like that. I said that the suction that the front flippers generated during the negative stroke moving forward would have aided the rear flippers in terms of their negative stroke because. Kind of you know, that, that type of stuff. the same thing, just a different terminology. Right, but that was a yeah. minor detail. The more important thing to me is the actual ranges of motion that the flippers are going through. And the study yeah, you're talking about, you. yeah, they're not focused on that at all. You know, they're focusing on these two these flippers going through the same ranges of motion, and yeah. in my opinion, they're missing the boat. You see, yeah, because yeah, you, you don't have them going through the same range of motions, the animal doesn't have to worry about, oh, I got to time everything to one millisecond in order to effectively swim faster. That doesn't yeah. make sense. You know, if you have the, the front section, which shows that it would have been pointed more down, and the back section, meaning showing the flippers and at the termination point, would be pointed more up, then that explains how the flippers moved and how they finished. So their power strokes went through a different range. When they do the, you know, the reverse stroke, the negative stroke coming forward, it would be more similar. And again, the rear stroke would be benefited a bit from the front. 
But that's yeah. not the be-all and end-all of the theory. The, you know, that's like a bonus for the animal, let's say. You know, the be-all and end-all of the theory is that you've got front flippers pushing down, back, et cetera, rear flippers pushing more upward and straighter back, see, and not pushing the same water. And when you do yeah. that, it's like if you had a whale that had a tail that was instead of 10 feet wide, it was 20 feet wide, which obviously wouldn't work anatomically, yeah. or a sea lion with four flippers, you know. But yeah, you, well, once the, again. The method you're talking about is that the two different sets of flippers are not interfering with the thrust they're generating. They're right. each individually generating their own thrust in a different plane and creating double thrust. Exactly. At the same time, without interfering with one another. Yep. And that's pretty yeah. much it. You know, it's not rocket science, and the, the skeletons, you know, they, they back up what I'm saying. When you see, like, updated skeletons of these animals that aren't flattened by geological compression, you know, they're... Yeah. You know, the, you could see that the angles that I'm talking about for the, you know, for the pectoral region, for the pelvis, you know, they're matching yeah. what I'm saying. And that means the flippers definitely did not move through the same planes. And well, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things going on in plesiosaur research now. They're, they're thinking that they had more of a fleshier trailing edge on their flippers mm -hmm. than is usually preserved in um, fossil impressions. Oh, that's 100% true, and I've been telling people yeah. that for a while now. When I was at SeaWorld two years ago, I, when I was down there, one of the things they let me do, which I probably shouldn't be saying, but whatever, it's not like I signed a, you know, a document, is I got yeah. to handle some of the sea turtles that they have there in captivity. And, you know, I was, it, was, it was fascinating for me. You know, I mean, I've swam with green turtles before, and I've observed them, and they can be very cat-like in their behavior with their flippers yeah. and cleaning themselves. It's fascinating. But to actually hold and handle these animals, you know, to touch the skin on the neck, you know, the folds, the scales, you know, to hold the flippers and stuff, it was really, as, as, an, as a writer, it was fantastic. But the, most, the thing that struck me the most was the fact that when I would gently squeeze the flippers, I would feel the bones, and the actual paddle is, in most of the ones I saw, is double the size of the bones underneath, on the trailing yep, yep. edge, okay? Not on the front, yep. you know, or anything, mm -hmm. which means that they had a much bigger, you know, vein, whatever you want to call it, going back there. And this is why when the animation was done, if you look at it, you'll see, like, when my, why uh, Matt... Lafreniere is a fantastic animator, and oh, yeah, he made he did a the, great job. Well, the Chronosaurus model he used was an anatomically correct specimen, but when he first started it off, he had it doing the shrink wrap thing, you know, the traditional thing, and I wasn't having that, to be perfectly honest. So yeah. he and I discussed more up-to-date theories on the, you know, the Chronosaurus, and we went with a couple of modifications. The first was we wanted to have it have a more marine animal whether you want to call it phocene or cetacean-like type of build. You know, an animal that's adapted for the deep sea. So like a leatherback or a seal or well, a sea yeah, lion or a whale. Well, have blubber, basically. Right. Yeah, so our Chronosaurus yeah. has layers of blubber, which you can see on there. You know, it's not yeah. some, you know, some sleek, skinny, you know, emaciated crocodile thing snaking its way along. We also, Brown adipose tissue, they call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got plenty right here. But anyway... <laughs> Sorry. So mine's a little paler, but you know, uh, it's a, yeah. a white that white fish belly. Um, right. So the 
But the, uh, that was the first thing. The second thing was I impressed upon him that these flippers would be twice as big, effectively, as what the bones indicated. And this made yeah. sense. If you look at Kronosaurus skeletons, the flippers seem awfully small, you know, compared to such a big animal. You know, but yeah, they weren't. Right. You know, so we gave them the proper proportions that they would have, you know, and ended up with a much more realistic creature. Okay? And the, the cherry on the sundae, if you want to call it that, is the actual skin pattern. Because since we were going with the Kronosaurus, and since Kronosauruses were known for preying on Elasmosaurus and stuff during their time period, uh, I actually had him put a skin pattern on there that was, almost gave the animal the ability to mimic an Elasmosaur if viewed from a distance by another Elasmosaur. So if you look at the actual swimming creature in there and you squint at it, you know, all of a sudden it looks like an Elasmosaur swimming. And this would yeah. have enabled the Kronosaurus to creep a little bit closer, you know, in the gloom to a bunch of them before it would get in close enough to make a rush and try and make a kill. So anyway, so yeah, we took a, there was a lot of thought and consideration that went into the design, you know, the swimming pattern, the flipper design, and everything else like that. But I, I was very, very pleased with it, and in my opinion, I'm the only person on the planet that actually got it right. So, You know, one thing I find interesting is that you look at the famous... Loch Ness flipper pictures taken back mm-hmm. in 1972, mm-hmm. and you look at current reconstructions of plesiosaur flippers with that fleshy trailing edge. The shape is very similar. Oh, it definitely is. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't yeah. know that you know. Which is I mean, that, that provides proof positive, but there's definitely some unre- unmistakable resemblance there, Absolutely. without a doubt. Oh um, boy. So we got 12 minutes left. Do you want to talk about your elasmosaur long neck? If I'm not boring you guys okay. to death, it would be no, my pleasure. No, no, I'm not, not bored, but I'm a plesiosaur nut anyway, so. Okay, yeah, just making sure. There. So the, uh, like, one thing I saw, like, on a paleontologist site was they were discussing uh, a while back the uh, different aspects of why people thought elasmosaurs had long necks, you know, such long necks, I should say. And one thing that we covered in the, the Flipper study, in fact, and uh, which Mark McManaman and I discussed, and I want to publicly thank Mark not only for his affirmation, by the way, of the plesiosaur swim you know, cycle, but also he even helped me refine you know, my actual paper. So you know, kudos to him. Um, the, uh, with the, the, the elasmosaurs, you know, th- there was all different things. I mean, there was like, uh, oh, there were bones in there that uh, you know, sliced up the... the uh, you know, the the thing as it, it went, like the fish as it traveled through the neck. I'm like, what? Or or yeah. they electro- electrocuted them in the neck? Oh, or, or I they, know. That idea I thought was ridiculous right or, out Or they stored, wait, they stored fish in the neck, I think was another one I saw. Okay? Yeah. And oh, I looked okay. at these, and I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, really? You know, I mean, they, like, Sharp twists and turns for an elasmosaur, you know, a 50-foot elasmosaur that weighs like 18 tons, that ain't happening. You know, in a straight no, line. You that long neck with that little tiny body, you know. Right, and that long neck weighs a couple tons, okay? So yeah. you've got like, you know, the, uh, you know, this, but the animal could still build up a decent speed, okay, because it has that, you know, four-wheel drive or four-flipper drive propulsion, yeah. okay? So I look at it and I say, well, why does this animal have such long neck? It's such a long neck. And, you know, there was one theory I saw mentioned that was, I thought was on point, which is like, oh, I'm, you know, uh, I'm hiding a giant body. I'm really a giant, you know, uh, marine reptile type thing. 
And I said, well, this person actually knows what they're talking about because that was, you know, what my school thought. But there was no explanation. Well, why is it working? Why does that work? You know, and you can't make a living if you're a huge animal like that sneaking up on a fish, grabbing a small fish that's smaller than your head. And then yeah. you did all that energy and expenditure, you know, swimming fast, chasing this fish, et cetera. You know, not to mention the maneuverability factor wouldn't be there. Okay. So yeah. I felt like they used this technique to prey on schools of fish. Okay. Now the question comes, well, if you attack a school of fish and you slam into it and you grab a fish, the rest of the school takes off. So if you can't maneuver, you know, twists and turns with this giant neck, et cetera, right. how's that working? You're back to the same problem. Okay, and this all went down to an evolutionary arms race between a fish's lateral line and the elastomer's pressure wave that it generates. And what I yeah. mean by that is, and I'm sure you know this, both you guys, yeah. fish have a lateral line that runs basically from almost head to tail. Okay, and this lateral line uh-huh. lets them sense pressure waves of approaching animals. Okay, yep. and this they can react incredibly fast to avoid things like that. And this is why yeah. when you see a school of fish, for example, trying to avoid a sailfish or something like that, you know, the whole school, it's like murmuration with birds. They all move together. You know, they're not smashing into mm-hmm. one another. How are they doing that? And the secret is this lateral line. Okay, but the lateral line ends at the tail. See? Now, when you're an elastomer, if you're a huge predator and you're swimming up behind a school of fish, you know, they're going to feel that pressure wave no matter what, okay, because it's going to, you know, move through the whole school. But if your head is about the size of your prey and you have a 15, 20, 25-foot neck behind that head, you are now building up a, well, a safety zone, let's call it, okay, where your pressure wave is going to disseminate, you know, disperse, see, and it won't be felt. So the elastomer swims up behind a school of fish, whether right under them or right behind them, whatever you want to call it, they can't see it. Their eyes are, you know, don't work like that. They can't see behind them, okay? Keeps pace with the school, comes up with a little burst of speed, crunch, bites down on the tail section of a fish, drops back a few feet while still pursuing the school, okay? Gulps down the fish and repeats. It's like a cow grazing. You know, they just follow the school, and the school is not so alarmed that it's going to bolt or sharply change direction, et cetera. See? So this animal is just sticking his head in there, taking a victim, swallowing it down, taking a victim, swallowing it down. And this lets him fill that huge belly, that huge body, while pursuing this school of fish. See? Yeah. And he gets the weak ones in the back of the school, which, of course, is better for evolution, right. obviously, et cetera. You know? And he gets a full belly, and, you know, there you have it. We you know, you would even think too, hmm? that they had uh, akinetic skulls and couldn't dislocate their jaws to eat bigger prey than their head like a mosasaur or a snake could. So they were limited to eating things the size of their jaws. Right, which would make sense. Yeah. yeah, so if, you're, if you think about it now, if you're like a, you're, you're this school of fish, okay, and you're some unlucky bastards in the back of the school, excuse my French, <laughs> you know, you feel a pressure wave of something your size swimming up behind you, it's another member of the school, you know? It's not alarming. Usually fish, you know, unless you're, you're not dealing with the Amazon where piranhas attack fish the same size, in the ocean, fish your size usually can't eat you, see? So the assumption yeah. on the fish's part at an instinctive level is this is just another member of the school. Do not be alarmed. Continue to swim. Continue to swim. You know, oh, oh, what happened to Harry? You know, oh, well, all right, let me keep going. Oh, I feel something behind me. Oh, that's Harry. Oh, oh, and then he goes and so forth. 
Yeah, it sounds funny, there's but also, try, uh, this is how it would work. There's also evidence from the Weymouth Plyosaur of sensory pits on the snout mm-hmm. that may have been some kind of electrode sensors or pressure wave sensors. Yeah, well, crocodiles have those also. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you're going to, I mean, you're dealing with murky water, maybe hunting at night for increased close proximity. You know, I mean, who knows what, you know, but uh, you would bet dollars to donuts that under murky conditions or, you know, yeah. uh, in darkness or in the deep water on a deep dive hunt, you know, the animal would be able to be much more accurately you know, inflicting damage, whether it's on a rival or a prey or yeah. whatever the case may be, because it has these advantages. You know, this is all evolution at work when you're dealing with, you know, master predators. Yeah, well, we've got about three minutes left in case you want to yeah. wrap things up. Anything you want to get in there? Me? I'm losing yeah. my voice soon. So if you guys have any last questions, bring it on. <laughs> Go ahead, Julie. Oh, well, I'm just, um, I just wanted to thank you for coming on because, I, you know, I, well, when you were talking, I ordered two of your books. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Earn oh, my keep. Sure did. And <laughs> so I, your theories um, on these, you know, animals is very interesting because it makes, you know, sense that a the more body mass a creature has, the less energy it wants to spend obtaining food. So, you know, you, you add that in with the the structure of the teeth and so forth. That I mean, it just really makes a total sense of what you what you were saying today. I really learned a lot today from you. Well, thank you. I, I'm I'm glad. You know, it's really just a hobby to to supplement the writing and all that. But you know, if I come up with a concept that I think is you know worthy of people hearing, then I, I try and get it out there. Yeah, I I really enjoyed today. I thank you. Um, we really appreciate your time. You know, two hours as I know is a long long time, but um, we well, sure really we'll would like you, to have you back. I'm so, sure we'll have you back you on know, at some point. Probably yeah. when uh, Kraken Part Two comes out. It would be an honor and a privilege. Yeah. Awesome. No, I meant for you guys. Just kidding. <laughs> Right about that so, too. So sorry, my meds Very, are wearing uh, off. You actually, know. <laughs> Can you imagine if I was on meds all the time? Is he on his meds when he's coming on the show or not? Why? Yeah, he well, off is more entertaining. But, the show huh? started. Yeah, imagine. Well, listen, guys, thank you so much. It's really been my pleasure. And, but, you know, I, I did want to say, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get too much time to talk or time to really talk about the Triassic Kraken or anything like that. We could discuss that another time. But I will once again say Mark McBenamin has been a huge help to me in terms of, you know, what I've been able to accomplish with my plesiosaur theory. And, yep. you know, between him and, and Matt, the animator, you know, they did a fantastic job on Absolutely. helping me finish the project. You know, I really uh, think a lot of people could learn a lot of great things from it. You know, even some of the big paleontologists out there. You know. Yep. Well, thanks for coming on, and we appreciate it. No problem. I will speak with you guys soon. You guys have an awesome day. All right. Yeah, you too. Okay, have a good day. Bye. I guess that's a wrap. Yeah, that's a wrap. That was great, Scott. Live long and prosper. May the force be with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Bye. Bye-bye.